1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Tim Cross, the Economist science correspondent. Coming up on today's show, the problems in a Dutch rewilding experiment where many of the animals are starving to death.
2: The issue overall though, is that the Forest Service is trying to stick to this vision of a non-managed wildlife population. They try to monitor the animals closely and when it becomes clear that an animal is too far gone, then they shoot it from a distance.
1: And we discuss how dolphins give themselves names.
3: They've been able to see that the names are actually not conforming into a team or a group name, that the dolphins really are preserving their own unique names.
1: But first, AI in medicine. People have been talking for years about using modern image recognition techniques in medical diagnosis to look at things like MRI scans and x-rays. And now a group of startups is actually trying to put that into practice. Joining me in the studio to discuss how this works is Natasha Loder, the Economist healthcare correspondent. Hi, Natasha. Hello. So, Natasha, who are these companies and what is it that they hope to do?
4: So, I've been looking at how firms are using artificial intelligence to look at medical images. Two firms I looked at in particular were one called Viz.ai, which has a system that's it's developed for stroke. And uh, the other company is called Kieran, and they're based in London, and they're working on mammography.
1: So you present the image to a machine and it says this person is at high risk of breast cancer, this person has a tumour or this person has has an occluded blood vessel in in their brain.
4: That sort of thing. In fact, it's actually slightly more clever than that. What happens at the moment in hospital scanning suites is that um, you go in, whether it's ultrasound or MRI or CT scan, whatever you're having done, And these images are taken and they're stored on what they're called PACS system, which are picture archiving and communication systems. And hospitals have had them for decades. And they take the images and they store them and then you can even send them on. But the point is, is you can at this point when the image has been put into the system, you can then run algorithms on the images which allow you to kind of pick up things. Say you had a suspected stroke, you'd go into A&E, you'd then wait for your scan, the scan would come through, it would get sent to someone to look at, they'd look at it and say, oh, looks like a stroke. And then at that point, they'd start ringing around and finding out what hospitals would be able to help and how to get you there. This, all this takes a lot of time. By contrast, if you've got technology like this uh, Viz.ai, the Viz.ai immediately sees that a scan has been taken and can identify a stroke. And it will then pull the images up and send them to the on-call neurosurgeons for that hospital. And what this is going to do is essentially transform a process which can take hours into sort of something that will take minutes
1: And these algorithms that they're using, these are, um, it's another use for deep learning. So it's basically the same algorithms that we've seen doing things like face recognition or voice recognition. This is yet another use for them.
4: That's right. I mean, the applications are tremendous. You just need to have a data set which you can train on. And so in the mammography example, again, this firm Kieran has been training its AI um, on data, which is breast scans that have been taken over the years where you kind of know what's happened. And it's got to the point where it now knows that its system is as reliable as a human radiologist. And so that could be really important.
1: And that was going to be my next question, actually. So I can see the advantage of getting this done quickly, but you also need to do it accurately. So how how do these things compare to your average radiologist, and how do they compare to the very best ones?
4: So most of the tests that are being done are against average radiologists, so it's hard for me to know what the best radiologist is. And, and really, kind of that is a good standard to, to test it against, as a, a selection of radiologists. And also, there's a minimum standard as well that, that radiologists have to meet. And so essentially, you have to pit the AI against these standards. And, you know, for them to even be useful, they have to be as good as. And in fact, what they think is going to happen is that not only are these AIs going to be better than humans, they think they're going to be able to do things that just essentially humans can't do. They're going to have superhuman abilities.
1: So what kind of superhuman abilities are we talking about?
4: So take prostate cancer. We find it very difficult to know what kinds of prostate cancer uh, patients has from, from the tests that we have available, like PSA tests and things like that. It's, it's hard to grade cancers. We can do it. It's just, you know, you have to take a biopsy and things like that. Well, you can also do an MRI of um, of the prostate cancer. And it seems likely that computers are going to be able to not only pick up these cancers, but also grade them in terms of, say, which ones are look likely to be fine for you to have for, you to come and which one's going to kill you really quickly if you don't do something about it. And so that's the sort of thing we're talking about. It may be that also AIs can pick up subtypes of different sorts of disease as well, sort of things we haven't noticed. They may discover whole new branches of disease.
1: <laughs> so, that, so they can pick out information from the image that's too subtle for humans to notice.
4: Indeed, it, or at least perhaps if the human had it pointed out to them, they might notice, but nobody has ever noticed before.
1: And of course, radiologists have this kind of special place in this big debate about whether computers are going to take all our jobs, right? So one of the reasons this is interesting is that you've got people like Jeff Hinton, who invented backpropagation, which sort of kicked off this big boom in, in deep learning years ago. You've got Andrew Ng, who's another sort of superstar researcher. And they're saying, well, you know, guys, you've had a good run, but it's time to just hang up at your stethoscopes and go and do something else. What's your take on that?
4: Radiologists obviously don't have stethoscopes, but... That aside, well, that's, um, that's me told. Uh, <laughs> that aside, my take is we're a long, long way from that happening, uh, for the simple reason that radiologists look at a really wide range of images, and what we're talking about here is some very narrow tasks uh, that are being done. So you're still going to need radiologists around to do a whole bunch of things. For example, they're going to need to run and test these algorithms. And when they can hand off some of the workload to some of the algorithms, they may be testing other ones. They may be using them in combination. They also will have to deal with the things that the algorithm cannot deal with because it's a very narrow intelligence. It's not a broad intelligence as, as we would have it when we talk about AI. Often we just kind of think of a machine that's going to do everything. Well, it kind of doesn't. And, you know, radiologists, they talk to doctors, they talk to patients, they write reports. They do a whole bunch of things. And it's probably more appropriate to sort of think of a radiologist as a sort of doctor that can read images. And what we find in all sorts of professions, actually, is when you give them tools to kind of take out the drudgery of their jobs, they become kind of better able to do their jobs.
1: Natasha, thanks very much. Thank you. Next up, in the Netherlands, thousands of people are up in arms over a rewilding experiment that's gone wrong. In the oost a 62-square-kilometre wildlife reserve northeast of Amsterdam, the Forest Service has tried to recreate what they think was the more diverse pre-human ecosystem in the Netherlands. They've reintroduced everything from red deer and wild horses to Heck cattle, with the idea being that this would recreate the sort of unspoiled Dutch landscape as it was before the humans arrived. Unfortunately, that hands-off approach has meant a population boom and a subsequent cold spell has led to starvation. Animals going hungry and passers-by have to watch them starving up against the fences. To learn more about what's going on, I'm joined by Matt Steinglass, the Economist Europe correspondent. Hi, Matt. Hi. So what was the initial idea for this rewilding experiment?
2: The initial idea was, was introduced by a kind of a maverick ecologist named Franz Vera in the early 1990s. They had a new piece of land, which had been reclaimed from the sea, And his idea was that rather than do a more traditional sort of Dutch nature park and then split up some of 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 the area for agriculture, this was a terrific opportunity to try out a grand scale rewilding of the Dutch landscape and they wanted to insert types of grazers which they thought had originally been present in the landscape. They thought that this would lead to more diversity both of birds and of uh, vegetation, and then they would just take their hands off and let that population of large grazing animals develop as it developed and have a minimal interference policy.
1: But it turns out that recreating an ecosystem from scratch is actually quite hard.
2: It really depends who you talk to. It definitely doesn't look the way that they expected it to look. Basically, there was a tremendous population explosion, particularly within the last 10 years or so, because there's no natural predators left. And actually, in the original plan, Franz Vera had talked about reintroducing the wolf. But this is an area that's right up against a couple of towns. You can see the towers of Amsterdam from the coastline. It's not a really distant wild area, and it's only about 56 square kilometers. So introducing wolves was important practical. And that meant that these herds of uh, of grazing animals just exploded to thousands of animals.
1: So there was nothing to keep the population down.
2: Right. Not until they run up against the limit of the available food. And the area is fenced in. So there's nowhere for those for these populations to go once they do run out of food. And then they start to starve.
1: And that's what happened over over the winter.
2: Yeah, it actually happens to some extent every winter. But this winter was particularly severe die-off. The number of animals had reached about 5,200. And over the course of the winter, 3,000 of them have died. It's now down to 2,000-some. And the spectacle of that starvation provoked very strong feelings in the Netherlands, which has a very strong animal rights movement.
1: And in fact, there have been sort of protests and activists complaining about this. I think you've met some of the people involved.
2: Yeah, uh, I met uh, one of the activists who has been feeding some of the animals, and she took me around for a look to sort of show me both what the terrain looks like and how they try to get in to toss hay over fences in order to keep these animals from dying.
5: If you, if you look over there, you can see there there's a whole row of deer there. So we go over these steps, collect the bales from here, walk over there, throw the bales over that fence there, uh-huh. And then there is a. Um,
2: so over the second fence past oh, the tracks.
5: Yes, over the second fence past. the It's it's hard work and it it is dangerous work and we were here on Wednesday and so wh- this where, where, where whole area what was full of deer. I think we saw about two, three hundred deer, and or then here next s- to the
2: tracks, waiting, yes, waiting for it, you to throw. Yes, basically
5: food. waiting for us to throw food, but. You know, we can't always, and especially the, the, the cattle, they really need it. So, mm-hmm. so that's here. Some, sometimes people actually put fire to it. Uh-huh. Um, last week uh, there was an action that somebody put fire to, to about 60 bales of hay that were lying there waiting for us to go over.
1: So obviously um, temper's running pretty high. Do we have any sense of who might be trying to set the, the hay on fire?
2: When the action was at its peak, which was a few weeks ago, there was a lot of political opposition to the people who were feeding the animals. The animal rights supporters who have been helping these animals have in some cases been rather irresponsible. So some of them, especially at the beginning of this whole drama in the late winter, were feeding the animals very high, uh, high protein rich food, which a starving animal can't metabolize like carrots and so forth. Others of them went as far as cutting fences and trying to rescue animals. And that created an impression that uh, these animal rights activists were irresponsible but that's not true of all of them. They're worried that a minority of the of their group are making the rest of them look bad.
1: And even for the responsible ones, there's, there's a bit of a problem here, isn't there? Because in a sort of functioning ecosystem, the population of predators goes up and down with the population of prey, and the whole thing self-regulates to an extent. But if you've got no predators at all here, then kind of the only check on the animal population is starvation. So if you try and feed animals over the winter, aren't you just guaranteeing that there'll be even more animals come next winter and an even bigger problem?
2: That is partly true. The Dutch Forest Service has already gone as far as to uh, try to reduce animal suffering by shooting animals that look like they're on the edge of starvation. So that's a compromise that they've made with the animal rights movement. They try to monitor the animals closely, and when it becomes clear that an animal is too far gone, then they shoot it from a distance. The issue overall, though, is that the Forest Service is trying to stick to this vision of a non-managed wildlife population and trying to recreate some kind of semblance of the original landscape that existed in the Netherlands before human settlement. What they say is, it's true that this area is fenced in, but any wild animal population eventually runs up against a border. And ultimately, animals are limited by the availability of food, and when there isn't food, they starve. And in wild as well, animal populations often cycle very rapidly. What they feel is that there's a limitation here that's basically political because of the level of tolerance of citizens for seeing these animals starve through the fences. And that's something that you can't really sustain.
1: So in other words, it's very hard to put something that is supposed to be free of humans into the middle of a bunch of humans and expect the humans not to interfere.
2: Particularly when you're looking at wild horses starving, and right across the street from them there's a very well-fed domestic horse that's sort of looking back at it.
1: Matt, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Perhaps you're a zoologist and you have thoughts on rewilding. Or maybe you're a radiologist and have thoughts on AI. Or perhaps you just want to get in touch. Send us an email to radio@economist.com or you can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio. <coughs> and finally, those noises you've just heard were made by bottlenose dolphins communicate with each other using a wide range of squeaks, chirps, screams, grunts and whistles. But any experts in the audience might have been able to tell that those aren't just any odd noises. Those are names. Dolphins, like humans, give themselves unique identifiers that they can use with other members of their species. To learn a bit more about this, I'm joined by Chiara Eisner, the Economist Science Intern. Hi, Kiara. Hi, Tim. So dolphins can give themselves names just like you and me.
3: Yes, and they give it to them themselves. They don't have parents who give it to them like we do.
1: So that's remarkable, but it isn't actually a new finding, is it? We've known this for a while.
3: Yes, scientists have known that dolphins use these whistles as names for a while, but before they mostly believed that the names weren't as unique as this research shows. And there's a new paper that shows that these dolphins prioritize the individuality more than previously thought.
1: So what do we think they did previously? How did they use these names? What was the the previous thinking on this?
3: Previous research has shown that the dolphins seem to converge onto kind of team names based on how familiar they were with each other. So dolphins form close first order bonds, which can be really tight friend group. So
1: what what's a first-order bond, just for the benefit of our non-zoological listeners?
3: So these are the tighter bonds. So they can be between friends, close friends, or they can also sometimes be between family members.
1: And the dolphins modify their names, we thought, within these groups to make them sound more similar to each other. Is that right?
3: Yes. Some research showed that they did this, um, and the understanding was that this was a trend.
1: But now it seems things are a bit more complicated than that.
3: Yeah, so Stephanie King, who's a behavioral scientist in Australia, has been studying this particular species of dolphins for many years. Um, And her team actually previously published some of the research that suggested that group names might be the standard. But now, after 10 years of recording dolphin sounds, particularly in the Shark Bay Cove off the Western Australian coast, they've been able to see that the names are actually not conforming into a team or a group name, that the dolphins really are preserving their own unique names within these social groups.
1: And it's not just that they prefer to remain individuals, is it? It, It's that the more related the social groups are, so the the closer they are to each other genetically, the more the individuality seems to matter.
3: So it seems to be similar to the the human phenomena of siblings. When you have siblings really really close in age, sometimes you see that they completely diverge in personalities to stick out from each other.
1: So I'm starting to wonder if dolphins are so human-like, and they have these complicated social groups, and they have names, and they have reasonably complex language. Do they do? Do they do other human things? Do they? I don't know. Do do groups of dolphins get together and sort of talk about each other behind their backs?
3: Of course they might. But from what we know about the names, we can tell that they're actually quite different from the way that humans communicate, in the sense that one of these dolphins that they studied repeated their names 80 times, one after another, just Joe, 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 Joe. So they they definitely don't stick to all of our rules, but who knows? Maybe, maybe they are gossips.
1: And good self-publicists. Kiara, thanks very much. Thank you, Tim. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you enjoy our journalism, why not try a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. You can get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tim Cross. In London, this is The Economist.